We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernan. Something completely different today. We are joined by Ted Soikinen, Head of Development at EVZ Switzerland Ice Hockey. Also has experience in Russia as Head of Development with HC Locomotive in the KHL, the Professional Hockey League over there where 18 of their youth players moved on to the NHL. He's also got professional experience as a player, coach educator he's a specialist in hockey iq so we wanted to get him on and talk about development decision making elite pathways a number of topics and he was absolutely outstanding you're gonna love this let me know what you think please check out the new content on modernsoccercoach.com here is ted enjoy ted thanks so much for joining me for the modern soccer coach podcast i'm so excited for this one Thanks for having me along. I've been an avid listener for years of your of your show, and um, gotta say, you got the greatest intro I've ever heard coming <laughs> in. It's like I just mentioned before, pre podcast. It's my um, my go to when I'm in the gym working out. When you have a new episode, I put it on. But that that intro is the one that gets the blood pumping. <laughs> it's the soul shower bit, isn't it? Soul yeah. shower is one of it. Fantastic. Well, appreciate that. Appreciate the support. Um, my, I I enjoyed the research for this here like and it's something that Lord, i think we could do 10 parts of this but i want to keep it towards development and decision making and try to keep it in that area and i've got a couple of quotes uh that i picked up with interviews and, and i hate doing this but like from twitter as well but i will preface this and like you use a big thread so they're thoughtful and there's stuff in them but that's what i want to kick this off and the first quote where, where you've said, if I take the best skaters in the game today, they all skate differently. So which one is right? And I think to start this, and we're going to talk about development and decision-making and the parallels between hockey and soccer, we feel in soccer, even in education, that technique is defined by the coach, managed by the coach, decided by the coach, and there's a set technique to do all these but five years later, we wonder why we've got a generation of people who do everything the exact same way. And I saw that quote from you and I thought, this is a great way to start it. And I wanted to ask you about your skill versus technique concept and, and try to open with that there. No, I think um, to put it in like simplest terms, I think like the ten- technique uh, puts the control in the coach's hands. Right. So if I if I if I say I have a textbook technique on how to skate, it could be for how to run or it could be for anything, uh, how we skate, how we shoot, how we pass. That puts everything into the coach's hands where now it feels like I as a coach and I'm helping the player. But. And that in a little bit for the coach, that's a little bit less work in the sense, because I can just form you into what the textbook says. 
But then, like I said, like if I'm looking at the best players in the world, which would be in the NHL, I could take five guys. You got McKinnon, you got Crosby, you have McDavid, you have Phil Kessel, and you have Dylan Larkin, for example. All five guys are pretty damn quick. They're fast. But they all skate just a little bit different than each other. So who's right? So now that's when you go on to, like, I, I like to use Twitter because I think that's like the more of the educational social media uh, in the sense where you have a lot of brilliant minds out there that are coming back on through, as opposed to if I go to Instagram, somebody would say, okay, now everybody has to skate like McDavid. That's the big thing. Okay, everybody's got to shoot like McKinnon. Well, not everybody's going to do that. So everybody has their own unique, you know, set of how their body moves. And I think us as coaches have to study that to be able to actually get them into a really great place. And to actually take a person and form them into something that would be quote unquote textbook, then we're taking away other areas of their game that aren't going to fit because their body's not going to move. And, you know, with the neuroscience background on that, that puts everything back into the working memory. So that puts them in the, in that focus where they're having to always think about what they're doing, which takes their brain away from other stuff that should be most relevant at that moment. So you know, everybody's it's that signature that each player has that's a little bit different. And I think that's where us as coaches, instead of like trying to study and trying to do all these different kind of hacks, the actual real hack is the one that how do you study your player and how do you get them to be more efficient in how they move? Yes. or It's not the what. In soccer, it's a lot of lock your ankle and follow through this way and back straight and all this jargon that that was there for the last 50 years you're saying that if they find a way to execute the task then you kind of double down on that there and then adapt your coaching to maximize that to maximize that so it's like what you're talking about there with lock your ankle and everything else we just take skating they're going to say like for maximum power maximum everything you got to bring your recovery leg back under midline. So you're going to have a full extension on the stride. You're going to want to be able to come out at a 45 degree angle coming off. You're going to have, you want to be at like almost at a 90 degrees in, in a squat position. You want to have this much forward lean coming through. Your arms are going to have to follow through, through past midline. And these are the terms that play that coaches use. And then I was, I was back to the thing is like, you tell me 45 degrees. I don't know that. And you're going to, you, you express that to a kid. The kid doesn't know that. And then you're talking about midline. You're talking about coming back and recovering. You want to have your, your toe coming through. You want to hit the glide phase and all this. It's like, hey, can the kid go to, from point A to point B? Is he fast? Is he quick? Okay, if he's there and there, what are we seeing that's wrong? Is it possible maybe a little bit of a, it could be a core stabilization, which then we're going to have to look at what are we going to do off the ice for that if he's a little bit wobbly upstairs and under all that you know you're under the underpinning of all that is going to be like these could just be his motor patterns well if these are his motor patterns and he's getting to the point he's he's in control when he gets to the point well okay then how do we fine tune it in a sense where it's going to maximize himself in that in that situation so then he's going to be able to manage and create space off of that very, very interesting. The the skeleton <laughs> that you talk about, this is this is fascinating here again to kind of tier development from a from a youth player into an elite performer. 
Can you share a little bit about that concept? Well, so every time I say it's like when you go to your anatomy classes and everything else, right? What what do you always see there? They have the skeleton. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And um, it's it's always something when I'm going to try to, you know, and I should preface this by saying where I'm going to teach a new concept to a player. That new concept is always going to be based off of their habits. So it's not a new concept that it, that's foreign to them where I want them to try to put that piece into the puzzle, whether it fits or not. You want to study the player in the sense about where his habits are. What is he trying to do every single time he touches the ball, or he touches the puck? Where is he like to navigate on the ice or on the field in that sense? Okay, well, once once you understand that, now when you're going to try to introduce him something new about like, okay, the mechanical side of things or what are we going to try to be able to do? Well, there's a skeleton. So that's where you kind of look at your ISO, your isolated areas. And that's for me is a skeleton. So he's going to have walkthroughs on it just to – to see how it feels. And during that process, I don't want to put pressure on the kid, you know, or the player or the adult or whatever. I want him to feel it. So that's where my questioning comes in because it is a skeleton. There's no meat, there's no muscle, there's nothing on it. It's just him in that area. And then what you're asking then is that's where the coaching cues come in and about like, how does it feel? Does it feel foreign? Like, you know, and his feedback to you, if you really listen to it, is going to give you even more feedback to how you build up on that skeleton now. Because if he doesn't feel it, then he's not going to own it. And if he doesn't own it, then it's just going to be that replacement piece that, you know, it, 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 it works for a little bit, but it has no longevity towards it. And so this is where when you, when you get this skeleton part where it's like, okay, let's go in ISO, let's get, see how you feel. And, you know, it, it could take a practice which is fine because it's not something that has to be rushed. It's like long-term development. Like, you know, everything that you have with habits and how the brain works on that sense, it takes time. So maybe he doesn't, he likes it, but it doesn't feel right. So all the next session that you're going to go out there, you're going to look at that same situation, but now maybe I add a little bit of pressure to truly try to elicit that moment out of him. And so then you want it to almost be subconscious where he's, you know, he's starting to feel it. But like I mentioned before, it still has to be in the pretext and have that context that he has within the game. So it's he starts to really understand it. And then you just keep building on top of that. Now you're going to start adding, you know, a little bit more pressure. And now you're going to add a little bit of scanning coming in. And then, you know, maybe you add a couple other players that you're out there with that. You know, I like to work in groups. And what you see, in, and when I work in the groups in these senses, it's more like, a lot of them have like the same kind of like uh, similarities in, in what they want to do, but they all have different actions within it. So if I can work on this, then I can put them all together. And then now I'm using where space under the skates, space between the stick and the body, you know, as, as far as where we're going to pass the puck. Now we can talk about diagonal lines about how I want to like move the puck, for example, to let the body follow the puck. So the puck is giving the body energy, for example, in that sense. And then, you know, on top of that is that the way I move the puck is also going to be the way is how I'm going to um, make the defender useless so he can't defend me anymore. But everything has to start off, in my opinion, starts off a skeleton so that the player really starts to understand how we work through it. Yeah, I think that's, that's fascinating. When I go to our game, soccer, like I think, I, I think, I don't thought this for a while, I think we get it all wrong in terms of the questioning. What you say there is, like, how does it feel? 
is more of a well you're you're giving that player ownership and you're a little bit more empathetic to like all right i've got a bit of space to adapt to you mm. when soccer our question is what options did you have you know it's more of a collective and a, and a coaching question but that question that you're asking there allows the player like when when you describe that all i can think of is to get to that level of empathy for the player's technique, that's got to come from your playing days, Ted. Like, that's got to come from the yeah. player in you. It has to. You know, I, I never had the coach that, like, I, I'm 46, so I, I, I had my whole life, uh, you know, growing up in the 80s, where we didn't have skill coaches. There, there wasn't that. And you also grew up in the time where in northern Minnesota, you know, almost 10 months out of the year, we always joke about it. There was frozen ponds. We're a land of 10,000 lakes there. So we grew up on the pond. We grew up on the outside rinks and we grew up, you know, practicing with uh, when you're, when you're nine years old, you're on the same rink with a 16 year old having free ice outside. And our games developed there and our games developed out of survival. That's what it was. <laughs> and you knew if you did something stupid to an older guy, he's, he's going to put you in your place quick. Um, but then, uh, you know, it's always the memories coming back where it's like this way, that way, this way, that way, coming back from your coaches. Those were, those were our directives. Um, but coming through when I first started, I, I'm not going to lie to you. It was when I first started coaching, it was coming out of hockey, just like a lot of coaching starts. You, you come out of your playing days. And after playing professional, am I, you know, it's, I don't remember what it was like when I was 16. I don't remember those times. You have memories of the championships. You have memories of some of the goals or, or, or things like that, but you don't remember the, the, the training process. You don't remember how you got that stuff. And to be honest with you, I was young when I, or, you know, 26 or so when my daughter was born. So, I was lucky enough in the sense where when she was born, I was getting into coaching and everything else. And then you, you start to adapt about kids. And when you're watching your own kid play, you know, as you're going through and you're starting to see how they move and how they pick things up. Then it just got into the part where it was like, well, I guess learning takes a different way. Learning takes doing. And every time I would try to instruct her to do something, it never worked. <laughs> it, it, it never worked so I was just like okay well then I started listening to Stu Armstrong and everybody else you know all the, all the different things you start reading about nonlinear pedagogy and constraints based the ecological psychology you, you start diving into all this which got me into diving into like let's see what the hell the brain's actually doing and how it learns and what's happening between our ears then it just got to the part where you know what I can't control shit. Sorry for swearing, but I can't control anything. Yeah. Once the player goes between the boards or once like, on the football field, he gets between the lines. There's not a damn thing I can do as a coach. There's not a damn thing I can do as a skill developer. So he has to own it. Well, if he doesn't feel right doing what he's doing, well, then he's never going to do it. So that was kind of like my, my wake up call you know, a little bit later in my coaching, but I guess still early enough where when I can ask them how they feel and everything else, it just tells me that that's going to be their ownership. 
And when they can tell me and they can be open about how that feels in their body and how they feel in that space, well, then that gives me even more clues about how I can actually help them. Because it's always going to be about, you know, like we have our stick and, you know, top hand, bottom hand and, and everything else. And we have the space between our arms so that we can be able to rotate. Well, now it starts giving me clues about, well, if he can't do that, if that doesn't feel comfortable, well, then we're going to have to maneuver him in a different way, which would be, it might be more comfortable, but still elicit the same effect where he's still going to get his space. He's still going to have his, his vision. He's still going to be able to have his scanning abilities. And then, you know, from that, you're going to be able to have your decision-making, which is what always is going to be the ultimate tool of who can play and who can't play. Oh, which brings us along nicely. <laughs> That's a nice segue, huh? Yeah, the decision-making aspect, uh, which, which you talk about a lot. And, and again, it, it makes me reflect the difference between hockey and soccer. And there are a number of similarities and there are a number of differences. And to me, in soccer, when I'm, when I'm thinking about it, a lot of decision-making we associate with the, the overload concept of possession, you know, using a 5v3 to break. But as coaches and as a coaching community, we yearn for that dribbler, that penetrative runner. And then in hockey, I'm thinking, and my baseline of hockey, uh, as you're probably, is very, very, very low. But in the hockey, I don't, I don't see hockey as being this type of pass, 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 pass. There's carrying it all the time. So are we limiting ourselves, do you think, as soccer coaches by, by being purely decision-making without any creativity on the dribble? That's interesting because the, the thing that I think our games have very, uh, are very similar in a lot of different ways, and, and it's the same with basketball too. If you study basketball, it's the same. Um, the difference, I think, the biggest difference between the two is that you're going to be looking at soccer and basketball is that – you guys have stationary periods. So once I, once I end a run, I don't keep running. Like if I end the run, I'm, I'm, I'm stopped, right? I, I can get into space and I'm stopped. Well, same in basketball. And I, I might be able to walk, but I'm still walking in that space. Where in hockey, we have this whole thing where we, we're on this thing called ice. And <laughs> we're once, once we get going, we can change our speeds, you know, the same in soccer, you can change your speed when you run into a full sprint into a light, you know, but we have our change of speeds, but unless we fully stop, stop, we're in a glide. So we're always in and out of space all over the place. So it's a little bit more difficult in the sense when we're talking about decision-making and, and talking about off the, off the stick handle for us and off the dribble for you guys. So for us off the, off the stick handle, that, that's a that's a huge necessity for us because we have a lot of you know pressure coming and in order to beat that first guy we may have to make that stick handle so we have to beat that first guy one way or the other with the pass or with the stick handle where in soccer like you know like when we're talking about it you might be able to kick the ball somewhere quick without having to make that but i think that's what separates uh messi you know, it's like, and when you look at Zidane and, you know, Ronaldinho and all these guys, they were flashy with how they could handle the ball, but they could beat that first or that second defender to really open up the game. And I think this is where we look at possession. And I'm, I'm in that school of thought from the, from the old Soviet side, like we mentioned before the podcast, 
where Tarasov was, it's a possession game and we have to find the outnumbered attacks. So Tarasov took a lot of stuff from football at that time as he was starting to build up Russian hockey back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Well, all they had was a lot of soccer tactics there because they wanted him to formulate his own plan and not steal from the Americans and Canadians because that was easy. So he was taking a lot of the concepts there, which was based on possession. Well, the difference between us and, and, and soccer is that, like I said before, we're able to move a lot quicker and we're in glides. So that means we can have speed under the puck, speed above the puck, and speed on the side of the puck. And we can get there in a quicker movement with five guys inside of like a small box, right? So that, that possession is then is saying, well, do we want to be strict position or do we want to have kind of positionless where we're filling lanes, where we're filling ice? So when we're looking at it from this sense, and don't get me wrong, there's a huge percentage of play, you know, um, coaches and, and, and clubs out there that are still just playing puck north and south. Let's get it. Let's hammer it and let's go. Where I'm in the train of thought and there's a new school of thought that's kind of going back in time and trying to take that back out and bring it forward is if I look at football, I look at basketball, I look at American football. Nobody gives the ball up on purpose. You have possession of it. Let's find a solution. Our sport, if you watch the NHL and stuff like that, you see the puck being dumped. You see the puck being chipped out. You see the puck, like, we call them easy plays or, you know, like, chip it in the open ice and let's go and hunt it again. Well, why do we give it up to go fight to get it back? <laughs> like, there's got to be better solutions. So when we, when we look at it, I always look at, I guess, a long, long answer shorter, is that we want to have, a possession that creates an attack quick. So if I can get the stick handle into a pass, then how do I make a two-on-one or how do I make a break to attack quick to get them out of position, the other team? When, you, when you're determining or when you're defining those overload situations, it must be not near impossible because you've got a trained eyes. I'd imagine those overloads are happening in multi-second, you know, like a you have a player recovering, you've probably a three v two that's coming back to three v three within three, four, five seconds. Yeah, if it's not quicker than that, mm. you know. But once again, uh, that always goes back to how we train. I mean, the foundation part is how do we overload the brain? How do we overload the visual system? How to and most importantly, as coaches, how do we allow mistakes to happen in our training? The only way that that's going to be able to happen is that the environment that we have there is going to allow for all these decisions and all these scannings to happen in a short, quick period of time. And so the more we can overload the visual system, obviously, you know, the brain will catch up and start to, to analyze the, um, the decisions that it was making. And then you have the power of video afterwards as well. But these are the things like the visual cues is, I'm not sure how it is in soccer, but here for us, it's always about, um, well, you had this guy. Did you see that guy? Did you scan? Nobody ever asked the questions, well, did you scan? The answer is going to be, yeah, I scanned. And you can look at the video and you can see his head move. 
but then it's kind of like um, it's funny because I see all these videos across YouTube and everybody wants to dissect the game and how that perfect pass was. And then you see the head move and you see this ball. Great. The head moved. But when I, when I talk to a player and I, I ask them, uh, well, I, I saw you scan. Well, what did you see? I saw him here. Okay, great. You saw him there. But what did you see? Well, I saw the player coming this way. No, no, no. Let me put it different. What did you see that the player was doing? So that's the information you want to get to. You want to try to pinpoint the player into the area where what he should be looking for. So for our sport, because it is like if, if you got a guy and he's got his toes pointed on his skates, that would be a visual cue. Well, the first visual cue possibly is going to be his hips because if the hips are gone. So are the feet kind of in a way. Right. So if you're, if you're going, these are my visual cues. I want to see if my feet are going to be going left. Then I know as, as a guy picking up the puck, I may be able to go that way to give him that thought to keep him going and then quickly decide to come out there because I'm going to create the space. And then once I have that in that visual, in that first scan, I want to see that that's my number one. I want to see with the guy attacking me. Now, obviously, you're going to have that quick scanning with your eyes. The second scan is going to be where are my teammates at and what are their roots. Once again, not understanding where, where their sticks are or where their bodies are, where are their skates going because we're gliding, right? If I see this guy into an area, then I know once I come out of here, so once I make my first decision, my second decision is already made in the sense where I'm going to be able to place a puck into this area because I know a guy's coming. Well, if he's taken, great, because now I got more space because somebody picked him up. Now my third decision is coming about where, what's, on, what's up above me. So, yeah, <laughs> these things, but they all have to be trained, I believe, in, in an environment that has, to, that has to give these kids these, these cues all the time. And as a coach, we got to expect these cues to be coming out. We have to ask those questions and allow for the answers and then guide them to not necessarily you should do this and this, but more into look at that, look at this. This is where you should be seen. And then all of a sudden you'll see the brain free up. You'll see when they make the move, they gain that, that half a second, that little bit of space to create more space. And then the attack after that is just a free-for-all because I, I call it the snowball effect. Once you bust the first one open, now you bust the second one, everything starts to go because in hockey you got quick stops and starts. Well, every time you have a stop and start happening, it's going to open up somewhere, somewhere else. Hello, coaches. You asked and we delivered. One of the most popular requests we get on this channel is passing warm-ups. And it's not the regular slow way to be passing exercises. No, what coaches are looking for is the one-touch, intricate combination type exercises with that emphasis on quality, technique, and tempo. So we have decided to put 30 of these exercises together and release them on an ebook that you can get access to right away. If you're a youth coach who's looking for some extra technical work, or you're even a college coach or a club coach working with older players looking for some warm up exercises or some pictures to align with your tactical objectives, we can help you out. Our new ebook, 30 Passing Practices, is available on the link below. It's a PowerPoint that includes video session details and coaching points on each slide 
tons of ideas, tons of different pictures, lots of adaptions. You can get it on the link below or at modernsoccercoach.com slash shop. Thanks for the support and enjoy. You've got a you've got a massive advantage in hockey because like just thinking the training because I go back to what you said at the first part about the environment where you overload the brain and kind of embrace that mistakes are going to happen. Well, in soccer, when we when we approach complexity, a lot of coaches will almost pull back on the speed of training it to slow it down. So then you're looking at a tactical concept and you you walk through it mm-hmm. and but then you don't overload the brain in doing that and then you don't necessarily drill for mistakes because it's happening so slow it would have to be a pretty big mistake for that to happen so that, that we i feel we reduce speed in soccer training to try and coach decision making where you what i what i'm hearing from you is you kind of embrace the speed on the ice, but then in the in the review process, that's when you slow it down and kind of dig a little bit in the video about the technique and options. But I think that's the nature of our game. Um, it's very hard for us to go slow. Mm. I mean, and then I think that's like the inner inner competitiveness of the players as well. Like if if we got a three v two or a two v three, like what we like to do is a lot of it um, reversing it, right? So. 3v2 is a little bit easier because one of your guys, but the 2v3 is now understanding like, well, now we got to really solve situations. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's much more difficult, but we got to solve it, which now puts us back into that stick handle or that dribble. Well, how do I beat the first guy to get, you know, to make it almost a two on two in a sense. Um, but the problem with us, with our sport is we can't really slow it down because once we kind of get in motion, it just kind of like picks it up and it picks it up and it picks it up where the, if you try to say we're going to slow it down, well, then you're really not getting the natural effect of the player either because you're taking away the player's speed. You're taking away the player's quickness. You're taking away the player's agility. And now you got something, okay, it looks good. Oh, you feel it? Oh, yeah, I feel it. Oh, yeah, I see it. But it's not real. Because come Friday night when we have to play the game, it's not going to be that. If that makes sense in any kind of way. So it's like for us, it's like it's the, it's the nature of the beast. It's like our game is fast. And, you know, slowing it down might be widening the area. Right? So you have more space and you have a wider area. So that might slow it down in the sense where you're going to have a little bit more space to, 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 to work with, but then you're going to reduce that space. So they have, they, then it just naturally becomes quicker and quicker, but to, to tell a player that we're going to slow it down in half speed or quarter speed, it doesn't, for us, it doesn't work in my opinion that way. Another one of your quotes, just going alongside that there is that, the puck carrier isn't the central figure. It's the four other guys without the puck. How are they moving into space? And I wanted to ask you about that there. How is that movement away from the ball carrier coached if you don't have structure and if the picture is constantly changing? Well, we have structure, right? So, you know, we're, we're looking at things. So we have a structural way that we want to play. And it's it's the same in, in every sport. You have 
we don't have formations like you do in, in, in football, obviously, but we, we do have different style four checks. You have a one, one, two, two, you have a two, one, two, we have a one, three, one, a one, one, three, and how you're going to go about it in the offensive zone, how you do it in the neutral zone. These are just like little structures. But once, once you get the puck, the, the main thing like we like to teach is, are you filling lanes? So if you see the hockey rink, you got the dots going down each side, they're parallel. So then you're going to have three different lanes, right? Left to center and the, and the, and the, and the right. And when we're looking at that is like, if one's coming out, somebody better be moving in. Because those two dots, we always call them the dot line that, that run up. We want to be able to say we want to penetrate middle. Well, if we penetrate middle, well, then somebody's got to be able to come outside. And the reason why we want to penetrate middle is we want to bring the, the two defensemen in and we want to suck the back checker in into the forwards or, you know, coming out to the puck carrier, for example. Well, if we're going to bring all these guys in, that means we got three people on the outside. Or vice versa, if we're going to go on the outside, can I bring people with me, but can I, get, can I attack the dot line on the inside? So to teach that, you know, once again, it's kind of like we're, we're always going back to – how do we structure our hit the word use the word but drills or exercises that's going to elicit the the, uh, the central figures which are going to be the four other ones and I think we that there will there will slow it down where we'll work with like say a forward group of three so you're, you're trying to create triangles like you guys do you know yeah and we, we have five so technically off the puck carrier you're going to have two triangles one secondary, one primary that, that are going to move in different areas. And, um, you know, it's, it's, how do we, how do we see it? Are you open or are you false open? If I'm calling you a false open, that means you're behind the D, but there's no linear pass to you. So in your head, you're open, but for the puck carrier where his eyes are and where his stick is at, he can't get you the pass. Mm -hmm. So that's where you're kind of like analyzing it from the different areas. And then you're looking at the, at the puck carrier in the sense of where you're looking at the defenseman or the forward that's coming up from behind you. Where are you situated at? Are you open in space where you're going to be able to attack from his space that he's creating in front of you, that vacuum in that sense? Or are you in line with him where once he gives you the puck, you're just going right into the defense? So this is why it's so important like, you know, how you structure your exercises to elicit or how you structure your small area games to elicit these effects where the focus is going to be with the players on the outside, which is why sometimes you put the constraint in saying, hey, before we cross this line, we've got to have two or three passes. Because once the puck starts moving, the defense will shift. If the defense starts to shift to, to you know, try to contain where the puck is at, well, that means that there's going to be open space somewhere else. There's going to be open ice somewhere else. So that's where we're going to be able to teach through video and through games. That's where you, that's where you should be moving. But to, to say there, once again, is like, you know, I guess the pretext to all that would be the, um, the central player with the puck, right? I don't know how it is in football, but I've seen some people doing um, all their viral videos and stuff with the highlight videos. But it's always the person with the puck. It's always the person with the ball doing tricks and doing everything. And when you see that person come back to the game, they go to private lessons, they do these camps, they do all that other stuff, and they come back to the game. But the game 
they don't do anything. So it's not transferable. Unfortunately, in both of our sports, it's a team game, which means that you have to have teammates to succeed. And what you can do individually with the ball or with the puck gets you to a certain point. But at that point, you got to have your teammates. And that's why for me, it's I was the four guys that do not have the puck are the ones that are going to speed the game up. And the speed the game up is going to make that guy look better as well because, you know, it's it's a vicious cycle of, of, of a good opportunity where if we move the puck, you're going to get the puck back. And it's all that movement that happens for us. Fascinating, fascinating. Coaching in-game, again, this is just a, a guess, but the helmet that they're wearing must be useful for blocking out a bit of, a bit of coaching. No, is, do you still, is it the same thing where the coach is screaming and, and doing all that there that the soccer coaches do? Oh, yeah. There's that. There's a lot of coaches that do that. But I, because I'm the head of development and I was that in Russia. And when I, that was one of my main things back in Russia because the, the Russian coaches are very vocal. Mm. It's, it's their mentality. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, I I sat everybody down uh, one of my first years there, and we we were talking. I was like, let's ask let's ask a simple question. Do you think the player doesn't want to make the right play? Yeah, of course they do. So why are you yelling at them to make the play? And then secondly, when they come off the ice, if they make a mistake or if they didn't make that pass, the first thing that we do is that we tell them. This was open. You got to do this. Like that's the words. The words have so much power. You have to, you must never do all these things. And that, then it's, that's when you get like that, that player block where everything freezes on them. So if I'm a player and you see this a lot, especially in today's generation, in my opinion, it's, it's more like so much information is out there for players to, to get answers for everything is out there, but they're also very sensitive. And, and, and we know how, how sensitive the newer generation is because like words, words are very impactful. And so when you're telling a kid, never do this or you must do this, and then the next shift that they go out there, they, they do what you just told them to do, but it was the wrong decision. Now you tell them another one, then they go out there a second shift or a third shift after that, and then they do what you just told them. And that was the wrong situation for the wrong answer for that solution. You know, now as a player is like, Oh fuck, what, what do I do next? Now, what am I going to do? Because everything I'm doing is wrong. So we, we start to freeze them. And this is where it's like, we try to tell the, we try to tell the coaches like you, you can't coach what once the player gets inside the ice between the boards, it's their game. They're trying their best. They Nobody wants it. Like I always say, nobody purposely goes out there to fail. I don't think. <laughs> I, I hope not. I mean, even at the pro level, nobody goes out there trying to fail. Nobody goes out there saying, I'm going to make a mistake. Mistakes happen. And this is where I always tell the coaches, like, when they come back, this is where the one thing is, hey, what did you see? Put that, like we talked about before, but how do you feel? Put that power back into the player. What did you see? Because maybe he didn't see his other options. Maybe he didn't see something. And it's always like after game and you had the video review, 
it's so easy to see everything because the cameras are up. So it's like the old movie uh, Vantage Point. You ever seen it? Yeah. yeah. I, I relate that to, I relate that to, um, to hockey all the time. The first vantage point in that movie you see is always going to be the player, right? Their reaction, maybe they don't scan, maybe they don't see the defender, maybe they don't know exactly where they are, and they're going to make the decision based off of what was happening in that moment for them. The second vantage point that you see in that movie, you know, and they got the second part of the story, that's the coach because you're up on the bench, so you're seeing it from a different level. And then the third vantage point comes from the camera upstairs. So who's right? You know, it's... We have to look at who's right, but we have to get down to the foundational aspect, which is we want the players to become better. So we better get their vantage point. So once we can get inside their vantage point, all the other vantage points kick in together to create the outcome. So now now you start creating that uh, that new synapse, that new pathway inside the brain saying, all right, because the situation is going to happen again. It will. It, it's a snowflake, but a similar situation will happen again. But how we precurse everything to come into there is going to make that decision better later on in later on in the season or later on during their careers. I thought this was really interesting. Uh, you talked in an interview about an attacking player who's waiting in a line in line during a drill, following the player that goes before them and giving them feedback on what they saw. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of that and what it opens up for the players? Well, Gary, you're a coach, right? Mm. Huh. So we usually, we, we sit there, our vantage point is always, you know, whether we're looking at them from behind, whether we're looking at them from the side or, you know, in front, we're sitting there, we're, we're seeing what they're doing, and then we're giving feedback. But I always look at it from a father and father and son relationship or whatever else. Like, we tell the kid one thing. Our kid doesn't want to listen to us all the time. They don't pick up everything. But another kid tells a kid something, and all of a sudden you have a little bit more of a conversation because it's peer-to-peer. So it was kind of like something I just stumbled upon where, where you're sitting there, and there's a couple of different aspects to this. So one aspect is like if a forward's going against a defenseman, have the forward trail, have the forward watch, and then when they come back, have the conversation. What did you see? What didn't you see? And what could you have done? What couldn't you have done? And then they have that inner monologue, which which also going to help the other guy because when he goes, he's already seen the situation. So they have that inner talk. But then the other side of it is like having the defenseman also speak to the two forwards, for example, the guy that trails or whatnot, and saying, hey, if you did this, then I can't do that. So, you know, it's – it's a mixed match. I'm not trying to say we take the responsibility away from the coach. But once again, to the prior question, is that these guys have to play together on the ice. They have to play together on the field. If they are starting to understand each other about the way that they're thinking, about the way that they're moving, and what can be open if you do this, and if, what might not be open if you do that, well, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is coming from a defender. This is coming from another forward. That opens up that communication line, which also helps during a game when they come off the ice for their shift. Now they start communicating wide open again. It's the same thing like when when we do our practices, we like to have our goalie coach uh, out there and we like to have the goalies actually speak to our forwards if we're working on scoring. Hey, 
if you make me do this, there's no way I can, I can control that rebound. You know, if you, if you change the angle of that shot, I'm square to you at the start, but when you change the angle, I got to slightly move, which also means that there's holes. And secondly, there's going to be a rebound opportunity where I might not be able to handle the puck as well. So I think it's, for me, it's like when, when I'm watching this, it's that peer, that peer education between the two. Yeah, I've seen it at a, in senior environments and in video analysis sessions. And it, it's so powerful. I always feel that the player is a little bit more comfortable in that situation because sometimes when players are asked to talk about tactics with a coach there, you know, it's very, like even for a senior player, that's difficult. Whereas if you're asked to give a perspective, like you said, from a goalkeeper, this is difficult for me. Why don't you do more of this? Players going to be more confident at saying stuff like that. Of course they are. Because then it always goes back to the part where it's like when, when you have this interchangeability, this intercommunication between everybody, it helps them become better at the same time. So now the defenseman that, for example, that's going against the forward and, and he tells him his weaknesses or if he did this, he did that. Now the forward challenges him next time at that. Well, now the defense has to really – you know, work hard and, and, and compete to recover to gain that. And then, like I said, when they follow that, you know, it's also the, the, the sense where we talked about a couple questions before this was that when they follow each other and he makes a move or he sees something, now the other guy gets a perspective, well, if he did that, now that there's a space that's going to be open on that side because I can, you know, I can see that. Because you're almost coming from it from like a first person point of view coming off of it, like a shooter, you know, shooter one game, like on PS5. So, so you're looking at it from these different angles. And once again, you know, subconsciously, you're already teaching scanning. You know, you're, you're teaching them to look at different cues that you as a coach don't have to put that out there, but they're doing it naturally. And that's what you want. You want natural. You want naturalization as much as possible. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. But it would be difficult for me not to talk about, you know, when talking even decision making in the sports, not talk about the physicality. Um, and sometimes soccer is looked upon as, uh, you know, as a almost a non-contact sport these days. But but I think when you get to the elite level in soccer. The physicality is that, like it's a difference maker. We can talk all day about how small Messi is and how great he is, but like the guy flies, he glides. Let's let's just say a player, a young player, and I'm thinking, and if I'm wrong here, correct me, Ted. But if you don't embrace or can deal with the physicality of getting smashed in the boards, I'd imagine it very, very difficult for you to to, to progress up the ladder. But there's got to be people like I can imagine my seven-year-old playing hockey. Her kid would be petrified. Like, but let's just pretend he's got skill. Yeah. <laughs> how would you like? How does the pro- process work where you're trying to coax or coach that player into the physicality? Well, that's you know like our game. We have we have rules that you know the youngest kids, your kids, safe right now. <laughs> if you were to join. There's no hitting at the start. There's no hitting. 
I mean, there's there's light bumps. There's like you know the kid's gonna rub you out on the boards, but there's no like run and hit. And this is I think around the, around the twelve year old level and stuff like that. We start to teach checking, and we start to teach like how do you prepare for the hit and and all that, which is why the decision making, the scanning, what you're seeing, and all that is so important because. Before you get hit, you got to know what's coming. And that's how you brace yourself. That's how you're able to put the puck in a position where you're going to be able to protect it. That's how you're going to be able to soften that blow. And there's all kinds of techniques behind how you do this. But you also have the kids that are that are afraid. They're afraid to be with the contact. But unfortunately, then they kind of weed themselves out of the game because it's a, it's a physical game. And this is where you're talking to players. I think the more we prepare them for, for the one, they come into the physical contact to do it the right way and to do it the legal way. And then they understand, they feel comfortable going into the situation where they're going to take the hit. Now all of a sudden they're not scared going in because when they're not scared going in, you're not going to get hurt. It's the same thing. I always talk about like, um, I bring it up to coaching courses, not the kids, obviously, but when we when, when I have to speak at coaching courses, when we're talking about um, being hit and being and, and, and taking a hit and giving a hit, it's kind of like um, when you see a drunk driver crash into a, a sober driver. Nine times out of ten, the the sober driver is either going to have multiple injuries or possibly even die. Where you know the drunk driver, he 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 leaves the crash unscathed well what happened well when he comes in he doesn't know it he just hits it but when we come in we brace and we get tight and all of a sudden when we get tight that's when the injuries happen because the body's not able to fluidly move so this is why we have to teach them about how to take contact and be not be afraid to come into it because once once you're coming in and you're loose that's when we call the slippery shoulders and, and stuff like that is like we can hit and we can roll off of it we can hit, we can use the energy from the hit to actually take it to a new position. Because once you make the hit, it depends on where it's at. If it's open ice, when you see the two guys, just like in American football, they just hit. Well, yeah, <laughs> force meets force and we're stopped. But when you're seeing it come on the boards and when you're seeing it, how we're going to do some like dynamic skating or agility skating, it's all about how do I twist my body to, to like a fiend, look one way, bring the contact, welcome the contact in. And then at that last second, as I'm coming in, he's going to hit the side. So I'm perpendicular towards the boards. And now I'm going to use that energy to create new space and he's gone. So, you know, one, one, you have to be a little bit deranged in the head. You know, we got to have, yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying we're the most sane people on the earth, but we have to be a little bit special there where we like that physicality. But, you know, even if you're not the most physical person, like I said before, I'm a smaller, I'm 169 centimeters, so I'm not big compared to what, you know, a lot of guys are. But then you, you look at the advantages and you look at how you can use the, you know, the disadvantage as far as size into your advantage by welcoming contact and using it for the, for the right way. Fantastic. Last couple for you. Uh, <laughs> something else that I would, this, this interview's flown. Something else that I thought I got to touch on has been the is again decision making connected is goal scoring and your goal is tiny the goal the keepers are wearing so much stuff I I don't know where like is 
before you shoot, is that player looking at a goalkeeper or are they not guessing, but are they taking an educated guess based on angles and speed of their shot? And you're taking educated guesses, obviously, right? And you're also taking, we like to say we don't look at the goalie. Like, as far as when we're trying to score, we're trying to say, can we see the white? I mean, that's the back of the net. Like, can you see the white? That's what you're trying to look for and everything else. But I always, I always get back taken back to when I was 16 years old and uh, in high school. And we have one of the greatest uh, goal scorers in NHL history, Brett Hull. So he's a Canadian, uh, but he went to school at the University of Minnesota Duluth for college university. And then that was his off-season home. And in 1994, he was, um, excuse me, it was the NHL strike. So he needed to skate. So he would skate with our high school team. So we're 16, 17 years old. And we have this, at that time, he's making like $8 million. He's one of the biggest stars in the NHL skating with us. And our coach, I can still remember it to this day. Our coach was telling us, um, asked him the question, like, how do we score more goals? How, how do we shoot? How do we do things? And he's just like, since the beginning of time of hockey, has the goals ever moved? And the answer is no. The goals have always stayed there. Okay, so you don't need to, you don't need to actually read that. So what do you need to read? You need to read, well, where's the puck at? That means where that's where the goalie's at. Once the puck moves, the goalie's got to move. So if he's moving, what's going to be open? So anytime there's a goaltender movement, you have to look at, like, there's going to be holes somewhere, and you're trying to hit them. And that goes into, like, then that's where the quickness comes off of the stick blade. If I stick handle after I catch the pass, I'm giving the, I'm giving the goaltender time. The more time I give the goaltender, the better position he's going to be inside of. The less time I give the goaltender, the better time I got to catch him. And this is where we're all looking at. I mentioned before is like if I'm coming down on you and I, it's not off of pass movement. Now I'm coming down on you one on one or two against one. I'm on the left side. I'm a left hand shot. He's lined up to the puck. That's his goal. His goal is to trace the puck. So now if I shoot it from that position without doing any kind of movement on it, no matter how quick, no matter how hard, anything else, he, he, I give him a little bit more of an advantage because he hasn't had to move. So he's going to be using his anticipation, his reflexes to be able to catch that. But now if I start to pull that puck into my body, I start to change that angle. Ever so slightly, he has to move. But as I pull that puck in, once I pull the puck into my body, now all of a sudden – as the puck gets closer before the release, I still have time to change the angle of the shot where it's going to go for my accuracy. This all happens like that. Yeah. But once it's happened, this is where the visual concept comes because now we're looking at white, we're seeing how he's moving. And then at that last second, I'm going to be able to go low blocker, low glove, high glove, you know, and then maybe shoot near his ears because this is the toughest position for them to catch. And with our goalies now, they go down to what they call the butterfly. So they, their pads stack, they go on their knees. And we like to teach the players to shoot by their head because I can't get the glove up there fast enough. On the blocker side, there's no way I can go. This is as high as I can go. So you're looking at that side or what we call the beer bottle shots, which is just above the pad. 
and just below the glove because that's also a movement that the goalie's not quick on. And if they do get down there, it's usually rebound chances. So there's all kinds of like little integral parts where it's, it's that chess match that you're always playing, but things are happening so quick, which is why your visual system has to be up. Or if I see, for example, I see net. Now I got three V two coming in, or I got two V one coming in. And now I see the net and now I start to look and I deceive the goaltender by changing my eyes over and just maybe ever so slightly with my top hand, I'm looking over, but I know where I want to go and then I can catch him because he might be cheating on that pass across. And that, at, at that time, if I do make that pass, I want to get it across midline, which is, you know, midline of the ice because now he's in movement, which once again, like I alluded to earlier, there's going to be holes and comfortability as far as making the save is going to be difficult for them. <laughs> yeah. Got it. <laughs> you just made it more difficult. Uh, amazing. Amazing. Uh, analysis, video analysis. You talked about uh, a little bit about before about going to the video uh, in your experiences. And obviously you have a wide range of experience from youth level to pro level. Um, it, it's something that is, it's the world I'm living in at the moment. That's something that is becoming more more progress progress in the football world in terms of coaching what what at what stage are, are people typically now introducing analysis in, in development models is there a more elite or is it is it happening at the grassroots level usually around like for us here and in, in, in zug here we're, we're doing it around the under 13 level but when we're doing it at this level it's not about the tactical side of things because, like, I tell them I don't want robots. So we don't want to talk about the tactical. So, what, you know, it's the video part for us, especially at the youth level, is always going to be about, like, here's what you're doing. Like, you know, kind of like seeing what options are kind of a little bit. So you're giving them a different point of view. But the tactical side is kind of like, okay, we, we want to stay away from that a little bit because we don't want them to be robots and just do this and do that and do this. As we get older, now the video is going to come into it. That's where we have, like myself, more on the skill developing side of things, um, working on the decision making, working on the individual movement patterns and, and, you know, their habits. But my stuff has to also fit within the structure of the team and the team's philosophy. So you don't want to have conflicting uh, information coming into the player. So it's always like, well, and that's that's why it's so important early that we make creative, independent players in the sense that can adapt to any kind of system because when they get to the pro, and hopefully they do get to the pro or they get to that top junior level, coaches change. Coaches change, philosophies change. If you're not adaptable as a player when you get to those levels, well, then you can only play under one style of coach. Well, then all of a sudden now maybe your career gets cut short because you can't. You get to the NHL, coaches changes, or you get to the Premier League, they change. And if you can't adapt, well, then you're out of a job. So this is where I think when we do our video, it's very important to say if, you, if you're going to do it with the younger, younger group, you know, focus it more on their movements, about how they're moving. But once again, preface in there how they feel. And then, and then you go about it in that sense. And then two, you know, you're going into that vision aspect about your different options off of that play. And then, you know, your scannings and work on it in that sense. And then as you get older, then it's gotta be, I think kind of a mix because 
this part has to fit this part. If there's too, if it's too far apart, now the player's confused and which one does he go with or worst case scenario, like you see with like a lot of individual coaches or, you know, private coaches and, and, and all that, they, they pump a player up in one way and then they, he can't fit in the team. So now he doesn't respect the coach because this coach told me on this, well, once again, the player loses. Both coaches are wrong. Yeah, well, in a sense, but the coach that the coach that actually plays you in the game is probably the one that's right, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of coaches, coach education in hockey, how does that? A lot of American sports don't do coaching courses. Does hockey educate licensing? How does yeah, that- we have it. Good. <laughs> Good or bad? I don't know what you. Well, want that's uh, how does that look? Was what I should ask. Well, I have coaching education, Mike, for myself. I have uh, all of our U.S. hockey um, requisites that um, say I can coach at these different levels. And then I went through um, the Swedish one as well, um, the top level in Sweden. I also have a Russian one. But I can tell you, like, to be a certified level one so I can coach um, kids, in the hockey school, learn to skate, early kids. It's uh, two days. And sorry to say this, but uh, to me, the most educated coaches and the most, you know, brilliant minds on pedagogy and all that have to be at the youth level because that is our base. And unfortunately, it's too easy to get the level. Okay. Now we got a coach on the ice. Okay. Now let's go. So it's almost like, um, survival of the fittest, the ones that survive this and have a brain and have some talent make it. But then I always wonder, well, did we lose a bunch that could have been something? So like our education level is, there's a lot of good stuff out there, but, um, you know, they do what they can as far as a governing body, I guess, to get as many people um, certified as possible. But then again, I'm always wondering to myself is like, do the coaches just do it to do it and not practice what they're learning? Because I know USA Hockey's changed their philosophy a lot and they're, they're really going under more of this uh, constraints-based approach you know, and, and ecological psychology and all this. But then coaches show up to these things and, yeah, I put my eight hours in, I listen to it. Okay, great. And then I'm just going to go back and do my own thing. I think the, the biggest thing that we have to have is, is uh, quality control, obviously. But here in Europe, we have a little bit of a better system where we have myself, like the head of development for the academy side, which is our, you know, older kids, 16 and above. And then we have a head of head of youth development that's from under 16 and down. And the same we had in Russia where the education to me is, I don't care if you go to a course, like to be honest with you, sometimes it's just cookie cutter stuff that you're going to, you're going to pick up, you put your time in you get the stamp, you're gone. Um, if the head of development have the quality control into, okay, what were you trying to elicit from that practice? What can be better? How are you communicating? Because this is the real education. And then taking your drill, for example, you give me a drill that you have and all right, this is good, but what can be improved? 
what can we do different next time? What did we see? So, I mean, this is where it's like a, it's almost like a mentorship that's always happening. But I, I would say that our sport lacks compared to, compared to football and compared to, you know, baseball and, and, and these other sports where you guys are light years ahead. But I think your sports kind of have it in a sense, especially here in Europe. I don't know how, how football, I know it's growing in America. I haven't been back home in a while, but it's growing. But when I look at your Barcelonas and I look at like your Man Cities and I look at Ajax, you know, it's funny because those three, <laughs> those three clubs I just said are all about total football from Johan Cruyff, right? They have a lot of his methodology that's inside of there. But when you're looking at the players and you're looking at like how Belgium, um, I believe it was at 2008 or 2007 when very disappointing world cup and uh, they blew up the whole system and changed it all. And now they're one of the best in the world, if not the best. Right. Yeah. So, you know, hockey, hockey is very slow to evolve. Whereas other sports do evolve and, and in football, if you don't evolve, you, you're, you're extinct, right? It's like the dinosaur cockroach kind of like thing. If you're a cockroach, you're going to survive everything. Or if you're a dinosaur, you know one way. Well, sooner or later, your one way is gone. And I think that's where you are as a coach and, and, and the game style. Yeah, it's, that's, a, that's interesting. Like, I, I think sometimes, I think it's as a football community, we have a little bit of an inferiority complex that other sports are growing faster. Um, it's good. It's good to hear that. <laughs> good to hear that at the bottom of the list. <laughs> We're not the worst. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, going back to the education, I think you guys have your your sport has done so much. And at the same time, though, it's like sometimes you can be too educated or too overqualified or try to complicate things too much, where you just understand at the end of the day, it's still a sport. Win, lose, players make it, players don't make it. It's it's not the end of the world, you know. It's like it's it's just a sport, and I, I think there's always going to be that healthy balance somewhere where be educated, but how do you take your education and implement it for the right reasons in the right way, and not make it too complicated for the players that are coming through. It's funny because, like I said before, I, I don't know if it was in the podcast or if it was our pre-contacts, like I, I went to become a paramedic and um, fire science when I was in college and I had to finish that when I retired. But it's, it's funny because that experience really ties to me in hockey and, and into my coaching in a sense where when I was doing my paramedicine, to get my paramedicine license, uh, you, you're in the textbooks. So then you're, you're working on dummies, you know. And it was like, okay, this guy's having a heart attack, so we got to push this amount of cc's of this, and then we got to do this, then we got to do this, it's step by step by step by step. And and you, and you ace it, you ace it in front of the instructor, and you ace it on the test, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well now you got to go do your ride along, so you have to go ride along with real life paramedics, and then it's so funny because when you do it on the dummy, you're in such a sterile environment. It's a clean room, it's a clean dummy, and. The, the guy tells you he's having a heart attack. He just took this. He just took that, blah, blah, blah. But I'll never forget my first ride along. We were, because I, I did it in Alaska. That's where I went to college. And we went to a very, very, very poor area, like the ghetto kind of area and in a trailer. And you go in there and there's this person screaming with pain. And they had so much pain of, 
and they're bleeding and all this. And then it's like, guy looks at me and well, what should we do? It's like, uh, the, 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 you know, you start stuttering everything. And then he goes, he takes over and he does something completely different than we just learned in the book. And then when we, when the situation was handled, we're back in, we, we deliver the patient to the hospital and then we have to go over it. And he's like, the book is one way. Real life is another way. You have to adapt to the situation you're dealt with. You have the knowledge, but it's not going to be a step-by-step. You have to go. And I think this is where we come into the coaching, where here's our knowledge, here's the scientific proof, here's, here's everything. But if you can't take that knowledge and put it into a real-life situation that makes sense, well, your knowledge isn't there. And to your point, on the other side, if you're so ignorant where you have no social EQ, you know, it's like, well, then you're not going to connect with your players and you're lost again. Well, it's, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm reading Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential at the minute. And um, wow, what a book. And he, he's talking about, and it's a chapter about how you would organize a kitchen. And you've got, again, similar to every industry, you've got the, the people that have gone through so much education. And he's like, you don't hire those people. Because, and he, he named, and I was even getting anxiety reading it, a page long of all the things, you know, the sewage is coming up, the, there's a cockroach coming on the table, the table five, all these things. And if, if you can't deal with all these things happening at once, and he's like, give me the hard worker, give me the people. So it's almost like work ethic, personality, I can teach you how to cook. And, and I almost think that that's, you know, looking at soccer and looking at coaching, like, yeah, personality, work ethic. Could we start there? Because then does that take you for, like, what's harmful for coaching? Ego, non-communicative, passive aggressiveness, like the, all the problems that, like you're saying, education and information aren't going to solve any of those. They're always going to lead you to that issue. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing like, I, I have a beef with, like, with, with all the coaching education stuff. Mm. Um, well, I had one yesterday here in Switzerland. I had to go to uh, for eight hours and think I'm going to learn something. But all I all I listened to was tactics and how you do a power play or how you do this and how you do that. And then I'm I'm looking at the group that was in there. I think there was about fifty of us. I'm saying about maybe forty five of us are going to go back and. Do exactly what we just learned because it was a tactical, it's easy imprint. But then I always, I always wonder why coaching courses. This is fascinating to me. Why coaching courses don't start with how people learn. Like how how does a child learn? Like how do you communicate with a child? How do you commute? Like communication should be a course of its own within every single governing body because how I communicate with a six-year-old is going to be how I, different how I communicate with a 35-year-old pro. I mean, that's just nature. Yeah. That's it's, here. That's podcast too. We've got you set up for another one. Communication. Oh, no, I mean, it's, 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 it's the art of communication. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's the art of everything. And I think coaching is uh, in its primary context the foundation of it is communication 100 percent. that because communication like i mentioned before is like the way that you're going to be able to break through and get through to a kid like i did 
like my situation when I had to be in Russia in order for me to, to break through and actually gain the trust, gain the respect and to get everything I want out of them on the ice. I first had to get them as a person. And the second I just had a talk with our coaches here a couple of days ago was the second the player understands that they're not the chess piece on the board and that you look at them as a human is this first second that they start to gain and trust you. But what they, if they believe that you, they believe that they're just a chess piece to the next win for you, you're never going to get everything you can out of them. Brilliant. Ted, what a way to finish. I have wasted so much of your time. This it's Friday. I'm cool. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. This has been amazing. Fantastic. Hey, I was, I was so, like I mentioned to you, I'm, I was so humbly surprised to see the email or see the Twitter um, and the email from you. And uh, it was an honor to be on your podcast and I really love what you're doing. I, you know, keep it up and I hope to keep the con connection with you going further. Fantastic. Ted, thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.